Okay, let's open with prayer. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. O Jesus, blessed Redeemer, sent from the heart of God, hold us who wait before thee near to the heart of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for our fellowship this morning, for every soul present here. And thank you for our teacher, Dr. Keith Lloyd, as we endeavor to learn what he would explain to us in your name. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are now into week three of our four-week series with Dr. Lloyd. I have copies of today's slides to pass out. I think we have enough, but you might consider if you're here as a couple, just taking one copy. I think last week we were a little bit short um, and didn't have quite enough copies. I've got another group. I'll start on this side. That's a... I'm going to put this, this microphone on, on this stand. We're doing recordings of these times, and they're, on ava they're available for podcast, as most of you know. Uh, Rich Milliken is taking care of that recording. And the only gaps we have is while we're waiting to pass this microphone around so a questioner can get recorded. So if you have a question, we're going to try this uh, a, a little bit of a new system. If you have a question on your mind, we're going to put the stand behind the last row. Just find your way to the mic. That way Dr. Lloyd will know you have a question and we'll get your question recorded for the podcast that way. So we'll try it that way. Take it over there, Dr. Lloyd. <laughs> Okay, thanks for coming for the third week, which means I must be doing all right if you came for the third week. Um, I put my email address on here, though, if anybody has questions. I'm K.S. Lloyd. That's the only thing you have to remember is there's an S in there at Kent EDU. The rest is pretty simple. And it's already different from your slideshow. <coughs> I added a little bit to put some context to this show. I wanted to talk about the intertestamental period, mostly because most people don't know much about it. Um, and yet, the New Testament would not exist as it is if, it, if that period hadn't happened. Think about before that period, there were no Pharisees, there were no Sadducees, there were no Zealots, there was no belief in the resurrection. So, a lot has happened in that time period. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel fell captive to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and this is where we've been for the last couple weeks. southern kingdom of Judah survived for another 134 years and fell to the Babylonians in 586. Even then, uh, once the northern kingdom fell, Judah was never quite an independent nation. And then the Babylonian captivity happens, 587 to 538. And during this time, uh, many of the 
most wealthy and prosperous of the Jewish people in Judah had been moved to Babylon. So a lot of interrelationships between Babylonian culture and Jewish culture happened at that time. And then Cyrus the Great defeats the Babylonians. He's a Persian king, and he defeats uh, the Babylonians and gives the Jews permission to return, and not only to return, but gives them the money. And this is all in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Gives them the money to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which not everyone there was happy about. Um, A lot of people who were still there the memories are long, and this hasn't been that long of a time period of exile. Uh, they don't really want to rebuild the temple or th- the walls because they feel like as soon as the Jewish people have their own temple and their own walls, they'll start it all over again, and no- new generations will be taken captive. Nevertheless, the temple was completed. So we call this the second temple period because the first temple was built by Solomon, even though Officially, Solomon did not build the first temple. There was a temple already in Shiloh before that time, but he built the first temple in Jerusalem. And so many Jews consider that the first temple. So this is called the second temple period. And then the next question is, when is the Bible canonized, at least the Hebrew Bible? And ironically, we learn a lot about it from the book of 2 Maccabees, which is not in the canon. Uh, It's considered apocryphal, meaning uh, debatable, as to its use as a scriptural book. But if you have a Catholic Bible or, or an annotated Bible, usually the Apocrypha is in it, so you can read First and Second Maccabees. But they note in that book that the founding of a library and collected books about the kings and the prophets and the writings of David and the letters of kings about votive offerings. So this is one of the first references we have within the, ri- the other writings of the historical writings of the people of the collection of the Bible as a whole. So we know around 400 it started, and then evidence suggests that the process of canonization of the, 20, the whole of the 24 books took place between 200 B.C. and A.D. 200. So the full canon of the Jewish Bible wasn't even complete when the second temple fell. All right, so the second temple was completed in 515, and it was constructed under the auspices of a foreign power, like I said, Cyrus. So there were lingering questions about its legitimacy, which makes sense. So because of this, conditions were right for sects or schools of thought, each claiming to be the real Judaism. And they tip, all of them typically shunned social intercourse, especially marriage with other sects. So not only are they exclusive as to Jew marries Jew, but exclusive as to sect marries sect. <laughs> they become very, very sectarian. And by the time of the New Testament, you know that it, they've become extremely sectarian. In the same period, the Council of Sages, known as the Sanhedrin, may have codified and canonized the Hebrew Bible. The great Sanhedrin was a kind of Jewish Supreme Court, and it was made up of 71 members whose responsibility it was to interpret civil and religious laws. And of course, the various sects would all be vying to get members on this court, Sadducees, Pharisees, etc. Okay, one of the things that characterized this period very interestingly, and it's a question that comes up with my students, is, is like in the early period, God talks directly to people, and then it, it seems to shift to where God talks through dreams and visions and prophets. And that period goes on for a long while. And, f- and even the office of prophet is very unclear as to exactly what that meant at the time. 
Deborah is, is a prophet, but she's also a judge, so we're not quite sure what that means. Aaron is a prophet. Moses is a prophet. Miriam, Aaron's and Moses' sister, is also a prophetess. Isaiah calls his wife his prophetess. We don't know if he's being cute or whether he's saying that she actually was equal to him as a prophetess. We don't know. But we do know that in the intertestamental period, we start seeing things like this. And it's because of the 6th century under Jeremiah. If you read Jeremiah, (coughs) it's the book right before the fall and the captivity. And Jeremiah talks about how many prophets there are. There are prophets everywhere. And of course, Jeremiah is not winning any points because his advice is this. The Babylonians are coming. They will defeat us. They will destroy the temple. We should surrender. (laughs) You can imagine how popular he was. He got thrown in a well. And that was one of the better things that happened to him. But he wisely saw that if they just surrendered, the Babylonians were not cruel in the sense that they would leave the culture intact. Unless they just kept pushing it, they would leave them intact. And they did at first. They came through, they took a lot of treasures, but they left the temple intact, they left their religion intact, they pretty much left them alone. But that didn't last. They resisted them, they made alliances with Egypt, and finally Nebuchadnezzar, the king, completely obliterated the temple and figured, I'll get rid of these people forever, and took most of the elite. The plan is, you take the elite of the culture, you bring them back to your culture, you train them in your culture, you make them a part of it, and you leave the other people there who didn't have power in charge. It's kind of a good plan, isn't it? Take the people who had no power, give them power, and then they become loyal to you. Take the people who do have power and retrain them in the way that you think. (coughs) So that's what happens. They're carted off, and Jeremiah ends up in Egypt because every time something bad happens, people look to the south. Let's see if Egypt can help us. It never works. (laughs) And one can see the irony that there's this relationship that Israel has with Egypt. Sometimes Egypt protects them, sometimes enslaves them. You're never quite sure what's going to happen with Egypt. If you look at Lamentations 2.14, the visions your prophets had for you were deceptive whitewash. In other words, Jeremiah is acknowledging that he was one of the few prophets saying we should surrender. (coughs) And most were saying, trust Egypt. So there were many people prophesying. And because of this, people start losing their trust in prophets. Don't we still today? When you watch television evangelists, there are so many, with so many opinions, at some point you kind of become distrustful of all of them. And that's exactly what happened. Psalm 74, 9, we see no signs, no prophet anymore, and none of us knows how long it will last. That's about as desperate of a statement as I've ever read. Joel 3, 1, notes, and there's going to be a shift. He predicts that there'll be a time when prophecy won't be the function of individual people, but everyone, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old people will dream dreams, and your young people see visions. So, not only are, are they lamenting the fact that the prophetic voice is lost, they're also looking forward to a time when they return from exile and there won't be prophetic, there won't be an office of the prophet. Everyone will be prophets. Everyone will have a young 
uh, relationship with God. Malachi predicts that the prophet Elijah will return. So there's a starvation for a prophet. And without this, of course, you recognize the importance of this to the New Testament. That because he prophesies this, later on people begin to ask John the Baptist, are you Elijah? Come. <clears throat> Zechariah even says, I think strangely and, and kind of over the top here, Yahweh rid the country of the prophets. In other words, he sees it as the reason the voice is stopped is because there are so many false prophets that finally just God just stopped speaking through any prophets. Okay, so imagine this context. You've lost kind of a sense of prophetic voice. Your country has been taken into exile and you've been returned. What do you do? You begin to collect all the oral traditions, all the writings that you can find, and you begin to make them into the scriptures. It makes sense what we call the Bible. Unfortunately, <coughs> there's, a, there's a saying, a Jewish saying that says if you get any five Jews, no, four Jews together, you get five opinions. <laughs> and I was going to say, I don't think that just applies to Jewish people. But it does show that, of course, what we call Jewish humor, uh, self-deprecating humor. But it, it also shows a, a wisdom and an insight into this situation. When they come back to rebuild the temple, we've got a real problem. From the start, there's three basic groups. There are those who return from exile, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel both favor them. Ezekiel calls them the people of God, and Jeremiah calls them the good figs. You can imagine who the bad figs are. The bad figs are those who had remained. Now, in a lot of cases, it wasn't their fault that they remained. They were just left behind, and like I said, they were not the elite of the country. Jeremiah calls them the bad figs. Ezekiel calls them the people living in those ruins on the soil of Israel. They don't even recognize them as fellow Jews. They claim that their country has been given to them as their heritage. All right, so, and there's yet another group, the Samaritans. And these are the people that live in what used to be the northern kingdom. <coughs> All right, so they're made up of a mix of the Jewish remnant and the people settled in Palestine by the Assyrians at the fall of Samaria in 722 B.C. Another part of the Assyrian plan it was a very similar plan. You take the elite out, you put other people in charge, they also would colonize. They would bring people in. And so those people would intermarry, and gradually the culture would become more Assyrian-like. And it worked. As you know, as I've talked about, the ten tribes of the northern um, of Israel basically disappeared. All right. And these, this is what they became. They became what we call the Samaritans. They called themselves the Shamarim, the keepers of the covenant not the way they're depicted in the story of the Good Samaritan at all. Jews called them the Shomoronim, uh, the people of Samaria. So already they couldn't um, refer to them as fellow Jews, even though they believed in the scriptures. They claimed they were not a mixture, but they were returned Israelites. They claimed Moses as the originator of their faith. They believed Samaria's Mount Gerizim to be the rightful place of the temple. They had their own version of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't acknowledge anything but those first five books. So they didn't acknowledge the history books or the prophets or the, any of the writings, the Psalms. Ezra called them the enemies of Judah and the people of the country. Nehemiah 
calls them by their governor, governor's name, Shambhalat. Okay, so we obviously have a skewed perspective. The books that we have of the Bible are anti-Samaritans. But historically, um, they're a significant group of people and also consider themselves fellow Jews. They do not see themselves, they see the other people as interlopers. Okay, something else happened, as if that wasn't enough. Now this is a couple hundred years later, and we're gonna fill in some other gaps, but Alexander the Great conquers Palestine in the 330s BCE. And as you know, his policy was to completely Hellenize countries, which means he would come in and completely change what we would call the infrastructure of the country. He would um, build Greek temples, he would build Greek baths, he would build Greek libraries, and he was convinced that if he just made everybody Greek, then the country, the whole world would live at peace. It's not a really a bad idea in some ways. If everyone has one culture, then there's no reason for other cultures to hate each other. And of course, it worked to some great extent. The world became Greek, at least that part of the world. <coughs> so Palestine, Egypt, Phoenicia, all came under the Egyptian rule, making trade, travel, and relocation easier. Now this is, <coughs> After he ruled, they, uh, they couldn't hold it all together, and they split his empire into four pieces. <coughs> Egypt's greatest city, Alexander, was like a magnet to the Jews, and a lot of them moved there. <coughs> and this is probably the most important change in the intertestamental period. By the time uh, Jesus is born and on the scene, Jews speak Greek. They don't speak Hebrew. And uh, really, most, uh, only the most educated would have spoken both but a similar situation, of course, happens when the Jews return to Israel. They don't speak Hebrew. <coughs> most, uh, most Jews speak Greek to the point that they translate the Bible into the Greek. They had been speaking Aramaic, so already they were speaking something other than Hebrew. And the Bible was translated into Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. It has to do with 70 scholars for 70 days translating it. Another thing that happens because of the Greek influence is <coughs> something that I noticed about the way the Bible is taught, that stories are allegories. And this is a Greek idea. This isn't a Hebrew idea. That these stories, um, let's say you take the story of Saul, and he's told to kill all the Amalekites to the person, and he loses his kingdom because he doesn't do that. An allegorical reading of that would be, this is a lesson to get rid of the sin in our lives. Yes, that if God tells you to get rid of something, you should get rid of it totally. And so they kind of forget there's a historical kind of act of genocide being talked about, and it becomes an allegory. This originated, and it started happening under the time of the Greeks, and it continues. If you read any Middle Ages interpretations of the Bible, they go crazy in this direction. Everything means something. Now, the Hebrews had their own way of doing that. It was called numerology, and, and that's a different study. <laughs> I can't get into that. But if you're curious about that, they had a, an allegorical system based in numbers, and every letter means a number, and so all kinds of mystical things can be interpreted from it. Because of this, though, because of the Greek method, stories are interpreted as complicated moral lessons, creating the concept of the scriptures as code book. And I think people still hold it that way. You know, the people that'll like open up a Bible and put their finger on a page, God speak to me, probably not the best plan for figuring out your future. 
they're looking at the Bible as sort of a code book. And this idea originates under the Greek influence. For instance, there's a Jewish philosopher named Philo, and he's born in the B.C. and lives into the A.D. Uh, he interprets logos, the Greek word, speech, principle, and discourse, as a bridge between the transcendent God and humans. And it's normally the one for wisdom in the Hebrew scriptures. It's kind of an intermediary between God and humans. And because he makes this move, they, they, they equate wisdom with logos, and it takes on an independent existence. It's called hypostasis. I can't say anything this morning. Hypostasization. Oh, boy. As soon as you said you're recording this, I knew I would not be able to pronounce anything. <laughs> Words that easily roll off the tongue aren't happening this morning. All right, that one doesn't easily roll off the tongue. But it means that they began to believe that the Word of God actually existed as a person rather than an idea. And Philo, a Jew, um, came up with this idea. This idea became part of what they call Gnosticism, uh, uh, secret knowledge. And it, uh, that belief system was a competitor to early Christianity as to the shape of Christianity. So, he refers to the Logos as the firstborn son of God and the chief of the divine messengers. And you can see that John uses a very similar meaning. So John would not be John without Philo and some of those beliefs. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In arcane he halogos, kai halagos, he prastantheon, kai theos, he aslagos. He alagos, sorry. I knew I wouldn't be able to pronounce anything. Okay, as we know, the Pharisees emerge on the scene in the Second Temple period. Um, it's from the Hebrew parasim, and it's meaning set apart. And at various times, they're a political party, they're a social movement, they're a school of thought among the Jews during the Second Temple period, beginning under the Hasmonean dynasty. We'll get to that, which means they didn't appear until a little bit later. The Hasmonean dynasty... Um, Hasmoneans are, are kind of a family like the Habsburgs become in the, uh, in the, in the Middle Ages and the Enlightenment period. Uh, they're a ruling class of Jewish people, a family that becomes a ruling class. And uh, one of them, Judas, leads a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. Maccabees just means the hammer. So he's Judas the hammer. And of course, you can't help but see the irony that the person that saves Judaism is named Judas. All right. The Pharisees believed in an oral law that gave to Moses at Sinai along with the Torah. So their tradition is that at the same time, the scriptures, the scriptural version of Exodus, etc., was happening, that an oral tradition, that Moses was handing down some oral teachings that began then and were kept by um, and handed down and, and talked about. And so it becomes something called the Torah. These are oral teachings that parallel the, uh, the scriptures, the written scriptures. Basically, to use a modern analogy, we have arguments even now over the Constitution. We say, is the Constitution to be followed literally or is it a guideline to which we, we can make interpretation? These Pharisees would have fallen on this side. We can interpret the scriptures. We have to modernize them. We have to always change our understanding of what they mean. So the Ten Commandments are the Ten Commandments, but 
as our culture shifts, as our emphases shift, we should be able to re-understand these things. And this is the basis of modern Judaism. So really the Pharisees kind of win. <coughs> they believed in a world to come, and this would be a world that where, um, basically where Israel is reinstituted, and that the Jews are again living in peace and freedom in Israel. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, so this idea is very late to Judaism, and it's not really in the scriptures until the book of Daniel, which is a very late arrival to the scriptures. And the divinity of the Torah. So like I said, it's interesting though to see that the Torah is interpretable, but at the same time it is God-given. I don't, holding those two together. But again, I think in a way we look at the Constitution that way. Nobody's going to want to throw it out. It has to stay, but is it going to be interpretable or not? And this becomes the basis of rabbinical Judaism. All right, so I thought I needed to back up and talk about the Maccabean Revolt. What does Maccabees mean? Hammer. The hammer. So Judas the hammer. And he certainly wasn't alone. And there's a great story that goes along with this. Antiochus Epiphanes, um, ruler of, well, we'll get to that in a second, but we'll see. Egypt was ruled by Ptolemy, and, well, we'll just call them the, Tol the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Yes? The Seleucids ruled uh, Syria, and Egypt was ruled by the Ptolemies, meaning that two hereditary kingships were set up as a part of Alexander. So in general, the Ptolemies allowed Judaism to function without much intervention. So at this time, Judah was under control of Egypt. Does that all make sense? Okay. But in 175 BC, Antiochus IV Epiphanes tried to take Egypt. Now Antiochus IV Epiphanes is another name. Remember I said that Haman was a name that when it's said among Jews, you should spit or something, boo, this is definitely a boo. So let's, I'll say his name again, we'll have some fun. Antiochus Fourth Epiphanes. <laughs> this is just mean. It, there's some things in history that are just mean, and this is one of them. He attacks Egypt, and then Rome intervenes and keeps him from winning, which he would have easily done, and so he has this army, and he doesn't know what to do, and he has to go back through Judea. So what's he do? He just attacks Jerusalem. Events is frustrated on the Jews of Jerusalem. The Seleucid army enters the city and slaughters large numbers of the inhabitants, carried away as, as slaves, many others. The temple was looted of its treasures and profaned by the imposition of pagan sacrifices. He had sacrifices instituted in the temple to other gods. This was not a good time or place to do this. As we know in the earlier, in the first temple period, there were times when pagan worship was right in the temple and no one saw a problem with that. But in the second temple period, that is not going to happen. So the temple was looted of its treasures and Antiochus' violation of the city was one of the causes of the Hasmonean revolt. So what does Judas do? Actually, they have a person that's making a decree that, that these uh, pagan sacrifices will be held in the temple and Judas Maccabeus starts killing people. And then he realizes what he's done, and he runs out into the wilderness to gather an army. <coughs> so Judas leads a revolt. It lasts quite a long time, you can see right there. 
166 to 142 against the Greeks, but he won. Now, he won for a lot of reasons, not just because he was that good at fighting, but because basically they were busy elsewhere. So he kind of got lucky. But so now they're not under the Syrians and they're not under the, or the, the Seleucids or the Ptolemies. He was named Judas Maccabeus. And this story is in First and Second Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha. All right, so the Hasmonean dynasty lasts from 164 to 63. Does anybody know what happens in 63? You probably guess. Who's there when Jesus is born? No, that's the A.D., but yeah. <laughs> what? Rome. Yeah, Rome shows up in 63. Um, so they're relatively independent for that brief period. So between 73 and 63, the Roman Republic moved into the region, conquering Judea in 63 B.C., splitting the former Hasmonean kingdom into five districts. And just for another footnote, uh, a series of kind of puppet rulers were put into place, but the one that concerns us as readers of the New Testament is Herod the Great became ruler of Judea under Mark Antony. All right. So back to sectarianism. We have to go to the Sadducees. And I know that uh, as a kid, you hear what the Pharisees were fair, you see, and the Sadducees were sad, you see. That's silly, and it has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> but you'll probably remember that before anything else I just said, but that's another matter, because that's so easy to remember. All right, so the Sadducees are active in the sample, Second Temple period. They actually precede the Pharisees. They're the upper, upper social class of Judean society, so you can imagine these are the people who returned, who have gained power in the new country. They fulfilled various political, social, and religious roles, including maintaining the temple. So they're in charge of the temple. And they deny the oral tradition. They don't think this oral tradition of the, uh, the Talmud uh, means anything. They promoted the literal interpretation of Mosaic law. So this would be the other side. Some constitutional... People would say we are free to interpret. Some say we've got to keep to the letter of the law. These would be the letter of the law people. These kind of discussions continue among the, ch you know, the Christian church. They denied any afterlife or reward or punishment since it is not mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. So no belief in the resurrection. All right, another group emerges called the Essenes. And uh, as one of my sources said, these two didn't like the other two. They didn't like the Sadducees and their elite class of society, and they didn't like the Pharisees and their interpret the Bible any way you want approach. So they emerged at about the same time, uh, and they thrived from about 2nd century to the 1st century CE, so they survived into the New Testament era. And they congregated in communal life dedicated to asceticism, voluntary poverty, daily immersion, and abstinence from worldly pleasures, including celibacy. Okay, so if you add up these three schools, you kind of see Judaism as it's emerging and as it takes shape in the Christian era. And you can also see some of the themes that are going to be points of discussion. This is why people will ask Jesus about whether he believes in resurrection, because they're trying to figure out, are you a Pharisee or are you a Sadducee? We can also see, though, what did they do? Daily immersion. Another word for that would be baptism. So the idea of baptism by water is an act of giving yourself to God 
comes from the Essenes. It's not a part of the Hebrew Bible. It's not a part of the Jewish religion up to this time. So all these things are going to be pulled together. And, of course, it leads scholars to go down many roads. Was Jesus a Pharisee? Did he ever live as an Essene? Was he influenced by the Essenes? Questions we don't know because of a missing portion of his life from 12 to 30. He does seem to come down on the side of the Pharisees, but it seems that he also attacks them the most often. So questions that scholars can work out. Okay, you probably also remember the scribes getting mentioned. Anybody remember the scribes getting mentioned? Jesus mentions the scribes often. (coughs) And so, of course, you're wondering, well, who are the scribes? They're exactly what they sound like. (laughs) They're the bureaucrats of the day. All right, so they copied and interpreted the law of Moses, and they were mostly administrators, and they were teachers in the school system. Ah, that's who the scribes were. I would have been a scribe, I guess. In the synoptic gospels, the scribes aligned with the Pharisees, but side with the Sadducees in the trial of Jesus, and the Pharisees are not mentioned in the trial. Okay, yet another group. You're probably thinking, are they, really, could you have this many groups? Yes. Does Israel still have this many political parties? Yes. All right, so the Herodians. These are those who support the rule of King Herod and his successors. Some people hate the Herodians. King Herod himself, Herod the Great, is not a born Jew. He's not a Jew himself. He's a con- his father was a converted Jew. So, and his, so he is not, and his mother is not Jewish at all. And everybody knows how you become a Jew in Judaism, right? It is your mother. So you can imagine they're being ruled by a king who is married to a non-Jew. His mother is, yeah, you get the idea. But some people support him simply because he protects them and he keeps away, as long as Jews are ruling Jews to some extent, then they're not being ruled by somebody else. All right, there are also Hellenists who believe um, that Judaism ought to just adapt and adopt the ways of the Greeks. And Paul is one of these. He is a Hellenistic Jew. He was, um, <coughs> he, he's a Roman citizen, but he's very much acculturated in Greek culture. And he reveals that when he makes a speech in Athens and acts that he's read Greek literature, he's very familiar with Greek culture. And because of this, he is the one who gears the biblical message toward the Greeks. Um, So it's handy that, not just handy, it's historical that he was a Hellenist. In that sense, um, most people think he was probably a Pharisee by his, if you had to pick a sect. All right. Also, there was a group called the Zealots, which just has a great name. Today we would call them fundamentalists, right? Religious zealots, I think we still use this phrase. All right, zealot is from zelotes in the Greek. <coughs> Notice that most of these groups are called by their Greek names or their Latin names. Pharisee is a Latin word. Yes, Sadducee is a Latin word. So they're not even called by the Hebrew names. Zealots are called zelotes from the Greek word. It means an emulator, a zealous admirer, a follower. And again, when did they emerge? It's starting to look like, have you noticed how many times I've got the little purple thing, second temple period? Okay, they, just, they wanted to incite the Judea problem to rebel against the Roman Empire. So, of course, this is a later movement than the other two. The Pharisees and the um, Sadducees have been around for a while, and the Essenes. 
This is a later group that emerges just before the time of Jesus. And they're most significant in the Jewish revolt that you were talking about when the temple, the second temple is finally destroyed. And it's probably a lot their fault. Um, and of course, happily, zealots have been described as one of the first examples of the use of terrorism. So Deuteronomy hands us the first example of um, genocide as a, as a religious act. These are just the truths you have to live with. And the first acts of terrorism, apparently, again, among the Jewish people. What they would do is, is um, this kind, these kind of stealth operations where instead of a, someone walking into a market with a bomb, they'd come up and just stab a Roman or a Roman sympathizer and then run away and be buried into the, to the streets. Okay, they, they had an even more extreme group, actually got the name of Sicari, which means dagger men. And this is really close to the, the fall of the second temple. So they're an extremist splinter group of Jewish zealots. They want to not only resist in armed ways, but like I said, through the attack of stabbing individual Romans or Roman sympathizers. Okay, like I said earlier, another thing that happens in the time of the second temple is a belief in the resurrection. But it wasn't part of, of early Jewish belief or even what we call the biblical Jewish belief. Um, the human is uh, an undivided whole, nefesh hayah. And all rewards and punishments are on earth. Okay, one thing that's important to remember about the Old Testament that I have to reiterate to my students because we tend to read the Old Testament through a Christian lens is that there was no other power but God. Everything comes from God. Do we understand that? If good comes in your life, where did it come from? If it's evil, where did it come from? Nope. God. And so their belief is, okay, if evil is coming from God, then that means what? That God does evil things? No, that means that God is trying to get your attention. Right? But everything comes from God. There is no adversary. There is no... They have uh, mentioned in some scriptures, as you know, is, is the office of Satan, but he's, he's an angel in God's court who just brings, you know, he's a kind of an accuser, but he certainly is not an adversary. He's no equal to God in any way. Um, and the idea of Satan will develop in this period as well, that Satan is actually this, this evil power in the world. But it's not a part of Jewish belief, and it's not a part of the Old Testament belief. So, everybody understand that. Everything that happens to you comes from God. Islam believes exactly that now. Everything is from Allah. Everything, no matter how good or bad, you accept it as Allah's will. That's exactly how Jewish people would have looked at it. Um, even in the Lord's Prayer, what does Jesus say? Lead us not into temptation. As a child, I asked, why would God want to lead me into temptation? And nobody could seem to answer that question. <laughs> I'm like, just pray it. <laughs> but I wasn't that child. <laughs> and that's why I do what I do. As I wanted to know, and that's what my grandmother said. I used to sit under her kitchen table and ask her questions about God when I was only two years old. <laughs> she said they were really hard questions that she couldn't answer. 
and this probably would have been one of them sooner or later. Um, but if you understand that's the Old Testament view of God, that who does lead you into temptation? God does. And why would he do that? Because you, to test you or to get your attention. Um, so, it seems almost odd that we would say, lead us not into temptation. It's almost like you would want to say, well, go ahead and lead me, and let's see what happens. You know, that bring it on kind of thing. Probably not the best approach, and that's probably why Jesus is saying, no, you don't want to bring it on. Right? That's true. No, hardly ever. And we also have to recognize, too, that in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, even if people repent, right, even if they change their ways, they don't get the benefits. Half the time, they're still exiled. They're still killed. Who gets the benefit? Their children get the benefit. And if you think, well, that seems silly. I mean, in some ways, by today's standards, it, it seems like, well, why would I care? Well, think about how many people don't care about the environment, even though you say, well, our children need it. So why would they care? Because that is their eternal life. Yes, they're not going to live forever in some other place. There is no reward or punishment. Everyone dies and goes to the same place. Everybody, King David and the lowest of the low, all go to the same place. It's a place of dust. It's not even weeping and gnashing of teeth yet. It's just dust. Everybody goes there. So what is your eternal life? Your children. You will live forever as long as you have children. It's also related to their view of how babies were born. I'm standing in a church talking about how babies are born, but they believed in the seed plow analogy that the man plants the seed in the woman. Yes, we still use language like that even though it's horribly inaccurate. It's not at all what happens. It's more like man is the rain, but you all know how that works. But they believe, because they believed in that analogy, they believed that all of a man's progeny, all of his children were inside of him. I won't tell you where, but you get the idea. That they were in miniature inside of him. Yes? So it was important for him to deposit them into a woman so they could be raised. The analogy sort of works if you think about seeds, right? You put a seed in the ground, and the ground nourishes it. The women were the ground. It's wrong-headed, but you add all that together, and you can see that this is my eternal life. Okay, you also can understand why there is this kind of weird relationship between testament and testes. Yes, I'm telling you that too. Because if you look in the Old Testament, you swore an oath by putting your hand under the man in an important area. Under the theory that it's impossible to lie to a man when you do that. And I've never tried it, but I think it probably would be. <laughs> I don't think I could imagine a lying to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> from that position. <laughs> and so, again, what you're doing is you're swearing on all of his progeny, yes? Does that make any sense? So it's an oath between you and everyone that he will ever be, his whole life, his eternal life. So, adults, think this is the belief. And so human beings are one solid being. There is there's breath and there is dirt, but it's unified together. There is no surviving one the other. And everyone goes to a shadowy underground place called Sheol, and they live there forever. And this lasts into the intertestamental period. 
You're asking yourself rightfully, well, why would that change? It seems to work. And of course, you could probably think pragmatically, why would that change? Why should someone be good if they're going to the same place as someone that's bad? Wouldn't people add that up? The biblical response was, life will go better for you if you're good, right? You'll be blessed if you're good, if you obey God. And if you don't, you'll be cursed in this life. But we all know that if you read something like Ecclesiastes, we know it's a part of Judaism to go, well, there are a lot of people that are really bad, living very well, who are very happy. Your theory is not making sense to me. And it's interesting that they let Ecclesiastes into the scriptures because it is so contrary to that other belief, like in Proverbs, that if you do well, you'll prosper. If you don't, you won't. Okay, so another idea emerges. Now, other cultures believed in resurrections of sorts. Other cultures believed in, in elaborate afterlives, and all of these cultures are right around them. Right? Egypt has very elaborate systems of afterlife. They even have um, gods who have been resurrected and brought back to life. And these are also images that are all over the Middle East. So at the same time, these other cultures are developing these other ideas. So Daniel, which I, as I noted before, Daniel is one of the last books allowed into the Bible. It, for similar reasons, as Revelation is one of the last ones allowed into the New Testament. Most people, a lot of people read it and said, I don't think this belongs in here. This is crazy. This is dreams. This is nonsense. And so they resisted having it in. And because it's in, though, we do actually have the only reference in the Bible of the resurrection. But in Daniel, it means the whole people, that all of Israel will be resurrected will, um, to live in this new kingdom with God. And that it isn't an individual thing. And as the book that I use a lot, the Bible's literature said, the notion that a person's chief duty in life is to win hers or her own salvation independently of anyone else's is quite foreign to Judaism. Okay, so there's going to be an idea of resurrection, but certainly not a resurrected king, and certainly not the idea of personal resurrection. There's this idea that, that somehow the Jewish people would be brought back to life to live in an, an ideal kingdom under an ideal king. All right, it's probably a result of circumstances rather than philosophical reflection. It's interesting to see how the idea started entering into Jewish consciousness. It arose during the persecution of the Jews in the first and section, second century BCE, and it's evident in the apocryphal book, Second Maccabees where it said, and here's another idea, what was it the reward for? Martyrdom. It's interesting because they wouldn't have called it martyrdom. That's a really kind of anachronistic use of that word. The only reason we say to martyr is to die. Martyreo in Greek means to, to bear testimony. It doesn't mean to die. It just means to, to bear testimony. Um, but it comes to mean to die because of the Christian persecution and the association of the word. If you bore testimony to Christ, you ended up dead so many times. But the whole idea here is the same, that in Maccabees it said that those who resist to the point of getting killed for the cause will be resurrected. So the idea is planted into the culture. It became widespread, but there were arguments over who exactly resurrected. So some believed only the righteous of Israel. Well, you can imagine. I've already told you there's all these different sects. All of them are going to disagree on every point. 
All right, so it's only the righteous vigil. And of course, you know that Sadducees, no, this does not happen. No one's resurrected. This is not a biblical idea. The Pharisees would probably welcome it to some extent. And they also believe that all the other nations just stay in Sheol. And then, they, then there's another developing idea that those in Sheol become conscious of their exclusion and suffer for it. And gradually there becomes a pl- an idea that it's in one place, the Valley of Hinnom, the trash dump for Jerusalem. And by the time it gets to the New Testament, they call it Gehenna. All right. Another idea that, r- that comes out in this time period, but not to the extent that I think a lot of people in the Christian church think, is the idea of the Mashiach. The, the Messiah. In the um, Hebrew Bible, when you, if you look up the word through the scriptures, it means anyone who's anointed with holy oil as king. So David, Saul, even Cyrus is said to be God's anointed one, the king that allowed them to come back. Isaiah calls him the Messiah. Um, and undoubtedly, the word was probably applied to Judas Maccabeus. He was the savior of the country, a Mashiach, an anointed one. So it's anyone that God anoints in the Hebrew scriptures. Okay, another fancy word for today is eschatology. Anybody got it? Eschatology? Yeah, it's the end times. So, in later Jewish messianic tradition, remember the oral traditions are going along, and, dur- and in these oral traditions, these ideas are developing. But as far as the scripture goes, it's based mostly in Isaiah, especially what they call Second Isaiah, because there were three writers of Isaiah from three different time periods. Second Isaiah introduces the idea of the servant of God. Now, his idea is a reinterpretation of Jewish history is that the Jewish people are the chosen people, but they constantly seem to be asking the question, what does that mean to be chosen? Apparently, at times, it means that you're blessed, and at times, it means you're cursed worse than anyone when countries keep coming through and destroying your culture. And Isaiah, in that, that moment when they're going to return, the second Isaiah, in the moment they're going to return from exile, writes that, of this idea of a Messiah and a new age, yes? But at this point, he seems to imply there'll be a person, yes? A lot of the passages about unto us a child is given comes from this writer, that it's a person, but also he is reinterpreting Israel's history, that Israel is the servant of God, and that Israel suffers for the sake of the world. Probably not a popular view. Why are we the chosen people to suffer for the sake of the world? I would say, I'm not sure about that option. And of course, they didn't have to believe that option. There were so many different ways to interpret things. But he seems to imply sometimes that it's the country itself, and then sometimes that it's a person or the ruler of the new Israel as the servant of God. Okay, something else that happens that kind of shifted everything, and I don't have a lot of time to go into this, is in the 1940s, they found something they call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And scholars were excited about this because these are documents from 2nd and 1st century B.C. They were put away in caves. This would be a way to check to see if the Bible we have 
is accurate because these would be earlier forms of some of the same scriptures. And they're still translating these. There's, it's still a process that goes on. And what they found, accurately, they say it's scrolls from the Judean desert. They're not that close to the Dead Sea, but somehow they got called that. Um, so in the 40s, I said all that. Okay, they were deposited in caves just before the Roman-Jewish War. All right. What they found was, like the earlier revisions, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there are three versions of the Ten Commandments in the Hebrew Scriptures. Sometimes when people say, let's put the Ten Commandments up, I'm like, which version? Um, there are three different versions. The Exodus 20 is probably the most familiar and 25 is very similar, but they have a different interpretation of why the Sabbath is the Sabbath. One of them says it's the Sabbath is there because of God creating the world in seven days. The other one says the Sabbath is there is a day of rest to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt. So they're very, very similar. If you look at the, at the uh, version in 34, though, there are different laws. Um, it's, it's very different. <coughs> and the reason that happened is like I've been talking about for the past few weeks that later editors went back in and kind of put their own take on, on the Ten Commandments even the Ten Commandments and some of the other laws alright the longest one called the Temple Scroll recrafts much of the legal portion of the Pentateuch from Exodus 34 onward setting forth directives in first person I Yahweh command you so we, it is some of the first books of the Bible are very different in the new scrolls and there are alterations and omissions from the Torah. And it seems to take a more pragmatic view of the law, shaping it to fit the times. Okay. So, in to kind of review, in this intertestamental time period, several ideas emerged that become important for the New Testament, several schools of thought. Pharisees were, what did they believe? That you can interpret the scripture according to the time. Resurrection of the dead. Yep. <coughs> so they're kind of modern in that sense. All right. uh, Sadducees believed in what? Literal interpretation of the law. They were the keepers of the temple. They were the powerful, the elite. They say, and some will compare uh, the Pharisees to be in blue collar or working class they emerged, the Essenes emerged, what do they bring to the table? Baptism, the idea of, of holiness and withdrawal. And then we have the Zealots. Remember that there's one of Jesus' disciples called Simon the Zealot, not a last name. <laughs> if we understood better, he's probably collecting people of different political views to be on the team, so to speak. All right. So all those things are coming together. A belief of, of Shaitan, the, the Satan, is, is becoming a more of an ominous figure in competition with God. But for most of the Hebrew period, where does everything come from? Good or bad. If bad things are happening, you must be doing something wrong. Yes, so go make sacrifices, repent, do whatever you got to do, and then everything will go right. Yes, eternal life was children, and everybody died and went to Sheol. 
which was a horrible place of dust. Sounds great. <laughs> okay, but writing continues. The Torah and the prophets are first canonized, but some material was added to the writings. Esther and Daniel are added very much later. Esther was not, they didn't really want Esther because it didn't even mention the name of God. So some objected to that. And so, of course, some editors added the name of God to Esther, and it made it in. Daniel, because it was strange and vision and apocalyptic, as we would say now, that's a Greek word that isn't used for that, but they thought this is kind of nonsense. They didn't want it in, but it finally made it in, mostly on the credibility of this character, Daniel. And others were collected and not canonized. The Apocrypha, now the Jews have their own Apocrypha, their books that they don't consider um, allowable into the scripture for various reasons. Either they don't, uh, they, and this is why Daniel was so questionable. They didn't really think that Daniel was written by the guy Daniel. And so it was tough to see if they should let that in. Um, but usually the Apocrypha is not allowed in for some other theological issue or problem. But it's not usually heretical. It's just uh, like the Maccabees are historical books, but they just thought they weren't that important to the biblical narrative. The pseudepigrapha, and, and it's like they just sit around thinking of really complicated words for things. <laughs> but that means if you look there, pseudopigra, it means uh, fake author. So they suspected even back then that some books were not written by who they claimed to be written by. And here's the most depressing sentence I'll offer you for today. Others were lost. And maybe a majority of the writing, maybe a majority of what we would have called the Hebrew Bible was just lost over time. But we got the one that we got <coughs> through a canonization process and probably the Council of the Sanhedrin. Does that kind of bring us full circle? Okay, there you go. Question and answer time. I think you have to go to the microphone. It's occurred to me over the years with my Jewish friends and, and then the things that you read uh, that the Jews seem to hang on to every bad thing that ever happened to them and they almost talk as if they don't want to let it go. And, the, and it's, and maybe, is that because of the, their, you mentioned that there are places that they are supposed to suffer for the world? Okay, this is an interpretation from Isaiah and I don't know how popular that interpretation was. So, yeah, but maybe a cultural sense that they suffer more than anyone else. And in some ways, it's true. The, they're in a highway between Assyria, Babylon, the, powers, uh, the powerful kingdoms that are now Iraq, Iran, and then Egypt. And so, yeah, constantly a warfare. If you look at their history, but barely able to rule. there are places in the world that have gotten stomped on, and, and they don't... Uh, hang on to it like the Jews well, do. I don't know. I don't know if I can characterize all Jewish people as that way, but um, do you want to say that definitely uh, in Islam and in Judaism, it's very important to remember your history. So part of it is that, I think, is that everyone is taught history. The Jewish people are the first people on the planet to be fully literate, 100% literate. So You've got a culture who values their history, knows their history, and I think maybe if we all knew our history more than we do, we might 
have similar complaints. But so I don't think it's a matter of complaining more. I think maybe they just understand their history, and they also do not see that history as something in the past. It is something very much alive in the moment. Um, for instance, I have Palestinian friends, and they act like things that happened in the Crusades were yesterday because they think in terms of family, they think in terms of schools of thought, they think in terms of culture, they think in terms of um, tribal units, and because of that, there's a long memory. They see their lives as historical in that way. So it's kind of a different way of looking at your family life. Most Americans have lost touch with their history, whereas most Jews and Muslims are very much in touch with their whole family history, very much in touch with their full family, and they have more of a sense of what's happened. So maybe partially that, I guess. Yeah. It might be easy to, to remember that God picked the place where they were to be in the path mm -hmm. between all those cultures that come and go. So right. it wasn't exactly like, if they're going to be victims, they have to be victims of God choosing well, that spot, don't they? And Yeah, and I think that's part of their belief is that God put us here and and I think that's why the prophets are trying to interpret it. Why did God put us here? And Isaiah concludes to be the servant of God. The original message was to be um, a light to the nations, right? That's what Abraham was told. So the idea is planted early on that you're here to be, well, Jesus says you're to be a city on the hill. And I don't, at this time, he's speaking to Jewish people. You've got to remember the context of who he's talking to. And he's saying Jewish people are to be the city on the hill. They're to be the light to the nations. He's reminding them that's why they're in that important historical spot. Dr. Lloyd, early in the hour you said by the time Jesus was born, most Jews spoke Greek. Right. Did Jesus speak Aramaic? All my life I thought I learned that he spoke Aramaic. He probably spoke Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew because some of it, there's a little of it sprinkled throughout. But then again, we're getting Greek interpretations. Mark is written down in Greek, so we don't really, in other words, two answers to that, probably being where he was in his culture, he spoke Aramaic every day, but he also knew Greek, and he would have known Hebrew as well, of course. Thank you. One more week with Dr. Lloyd. <laughs> it's getting more exciting by the week. <laughs> Actually get into the